Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're in Ma- uh, Mark chapter 11 today. Super excited about Mark chapter 11. Tons of stuff going on. We're just going to jump right in. And, and as we know in Mark, we get this word and, and immediately all the time, because Mark is a fast-paced young writer and everything. He's just going from story to story to story. He jumps in right at the beginning of Jesus's life when he's 30. No history, no nothing before the age of 30. His baptism, his first day of ministry, and all the way through. And, and in 11 chapters or 10 chapters, he covers three years of Jesus's life. And then he hits the brakes. Mark's going to hit the brakes right here. And as fast as that train was going in the gospel of Mark, I I think things are flying to the front and hitting the window as as Mark slams on the brakes here in chapter 11. And he's going to slow down. And and we're going to get in 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15, the last week of Jesus's life. You know, this is consistent through all four gospels. In all four gospels, in, in the gospel of John, for example, John takes from, from chapter 1 through 12, to deal with every part of Jesus's life. And then 13 to 21, seven more chapters, one third of the whole book, the whole gospel of John is devoted to the last 72, 48 hours of Jesus's life. And then um, post-resurrection. And so this last week that we're starting today in the life of Jesus is so important. And, and each gospel writer takes so much time. I think of the Uh, There's 29 chapters in the four Gospels that deal with the last week of Jesus. 13 of those chapters deal with the last 48 hours of Jesus' life. And so that's where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark today in chapter 11 at at Palm Sunday. The triumphal entry. The the seven days later will will bring us to Easter Sunday. What happens in Jesus' life on Easter Sunday? One person knows. Woo! Do the wave. What happens to Jesus on Easter Sunday? Somebody look over your neighbor and say, He is. He rose again. Jesus rose from the grave. So He's seven days away, five days, four days away from being nailed to a cross. This is crunch time. This is the fourth quarter. We're down a touchdown and Jesus has to, you know, get us to where we need to be. And so the the triumphal entry is Jesus' first public declaration that He's God, that He's to be worshipped. He's going to allow worship. He's making a public statement. And He's also the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world, right? That's one of the titles of Jesus. When John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're going to see in this chapter that um, when you brought a lamb at Passover to offer it to God, as each person was required to do, and depending on how much money you had, some like Mary and Joseph, they were poor, so they only could afford a turtle dove. So God accepted it in the law. And he said, if you're poor, you can bring a turtle dove. And that's all they had. You could bring a lamb and you could bring, there was different things that were prescribed, but it had to be perfect without blemish. And, and totally flawless in order to offer it to the Lord. And Jesus was on display in the triumphal entry as he entered Jerusalem for the whole world to see that he was perfect and he was flawless and he was without blemish. And so as he's going to triumphantly enter Jerusalem. Now this title of this, this section is called the triumphal entry. What's interesting about the triumphal entry is it's recorded in all four gospels. We don't have too many stories that, that are consistently recorded in all four. Maybe three of them touched on it, two of them, one of them. But, but the triumphal entry is one of those that all four gospel writers and the Holy Spirit inspired all four of them to record. Why? Because it's important. 
Because it's, it's something that if he tells you four times, you, you, you really should get it, right? Some things he repeats twice, but something he tells us four times, I think we should pay attention. And so in verse, 11, uh, verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany, the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will give it back or he will send it back. And I'm going to borrow it. But God says, I'm going to give it back. And and it says here that the Lord had need of it. And and you, you think of that phrase that Jesus had need of something. Does Jesus need things? You know, I, I always preach that Jesus doesn't need your money. You know, I say that all the time. He's God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. When he needs money, he goes to the Sea of Galilee and he, a fish swims up to the edge and he opens the mouth and he takes the money out and he pays his taxes. But the reality is, is God has chosen to partner with you and I. And in, in that way, he needs you to be a part. And here it says that he needed to borrow this donkey. And not that, not that if this guy didn't give it, that he wouldn't have got it somewhere else because he would have got it somewhere else. But this guy had the opportunity to be a partner with Jesus in accomplishing God's will and fulfilling prophecy. And so God uses and God needs. And what's amazing is he says, hey, we're going to borrow this, but we're going to bring it back. You you know, I I imagine if Jesus borrowed your car and, and he returned it to you three days later or next day. You think it would be all beat up and and scratched up and run through the weeds and no gas? Probably not, right? You think if Jesus borrowed your car, it's going to come back with a full tank of gas. It's going to be clean. It's going to, you know, probably not going to touch the road for a couple miles. You know, it's going to float over the top for a while. And and so no doubt Jesus not only would have borrowed and returned this donkey, but I'm sure that donkey would have been easier to ride and had a better personality and a harder worker. And I mean, this donkey was fixed when Jesus brought it back. But he says, I'm going to borrow it and I'm going to bring it back. And that's just the way that God has chosen to work in your life and my life, that he partners with us. And he doesn't have to, but he's chosen to. He says, I take the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And he's chosen to take, you know, turnips and and use them to preach the gospel. That's why when he went and picked 12 disciples, he picked Peter and James and John and those guys. (coughs) He took the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And that's always what he does. And so the Lord has need. Jesus needed a boat. He was here on earth. You and I need a boat. What do we do? We go to the bank. We borrow some money. We can't afford it. We get a credit card. We go buy a boat. Jesus didn't do that. He borrowed a boat. He said, hey, Peter, can I borrow your boat? Jesus needed a place to stay. Didn't buy a house. He borrowed a house. He said, matter of fact, he said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes have Holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he had a borrowed boat, slept in a borrowed house. He died and was put in a borrowed tomb. Cool thing about the tomb, he just gave it back. He only needed it for a couple days. And here, a borrowed donkey for his triumphal entry. Because God chooses to to be a part of of your and I's life. You know, for example, God, God wants to partner with you to raise godly children. And he and and so that's what prayer is all about. Prayer is us getting to partner with 
and, and be a part of what, what God wants to do in the life of our kids and, and getting His will accomplished on the earth and, and raising godly children. It's, it's part of the partnership that God wants with us as He has need of what we have. And in verse 4 it says, So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. So they just went up and took it. And some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosing the colt? In the other gospel, it tells us, the story repeated four times again. In the other gospel, it says that Jesus said, when you see a man carrying a pitcher of water, then that will be a sign that that's, that's the house and that's the donkey I want you to loose. And he said, a man carrying a pitcher of water don't sound like much of a sign. But in that day, men didn't carry water. That was women's work. And women carried water. So women, you can thank Jesus for, for, for what he's done in your life and our society. And, and so w- women... For a man to be carrying the water, it would have been a sign and they would have saw him. And so they came and they loosed it. And just as Jesus said in verse six, it says, and they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded and they let them go. So the guy said, stop, hey, that's my colt. What are you doing with it? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And then they smiled and they said, "Okay, great, take it. I wish that worked like at the Ferrari dealership. I'm going to go down there for a test drive and then I'm just going to say, hey, the Lord has need of this. Think it'll work? Probably not. If I take off at that point, I'm going to jail, right? I wish it would work. You know, you just tell somebody they need something. The Lord has need of it, and they give it to you. But I guess if God's in it, there's a true story. When we were, um, in, we used to go down to Long Beach. We used to taste a youth group down to Long Beach, and there was a there was a ministry down there on a boat. Was it called a love boat? Friendships, friendships, love, friendship. It's the same thing, right? The love boat. It's called friendships. But this ministry was called the boat was called friendships. And the guy had this big, huge boat, like a cargo boat. And, and, and for example, one time, like the FBI raided some illegal Nike ring. And, uh, somebody's making illegal Nike shoes and thousands of pairs of Nikes that were, that were black market. And the FBI confiscated them. They, this guy got them to donate them to him and got them to agree that he could, he could take them to third world countries, the poorest people in all the world, and give them out for free. And so he had a ministry and he would collect things like that. He would collect food and supplies and clothes. And he had like, you know, fifth will donations and uh, fifth will. Goodwill. <laughs> Goodwill. Though. You guys didn't even catch it. Don't say I'm struggling. You guys are like, yeah, fifth will donations. <laughs> Goodwill type donations um, and, and whatever. And so the youth group would go down and we didn't. We didn't get a sale with him, but what we did was we got to go and work like slaves, which we were for a couple of days and um, clean all the trash and go through all because everybody could give him their trash, too. And he'd have to go through it and find what he could put on the boat. But then he would he'd load the boat up. And when it was was time to sail, they would get in and they would they would sail to the shores of Africa and different places. And they would just give all this stuff out. He wrote a book about his story in the friendships boat. And I think he has three boats now. But the first boat that he have is it's a big like cargo boat, like big Long Beach harbor huge boat and he went in and he told the captain of the who owned the boat and he said god told me you're going to give me that boat and the guy's like i'm going to punch you in the eye i'm not going to give you my boat you better get out of here with that nonsense and so he left and, and and over a period of time sure enough the guy calls him and says i had a vision and god told me i'm supposed to give you this boat come get it and he walked up and the guy gave him the boat and that's how he had the first boat he went to the guy and god told him god told him god spoke to him now, again, don't try it at the Ferrari dealership like I want to because it's not going to work. 
But if God speaks to you, and He's going to speak to the other side as well, that God has need of it. And that's what happened here. And God prepared them. And they went and they said, the Lord has need of it. And He gave it to them. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and he threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before them and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David, that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So you guys know Jesus was always in this, like, don't tell stage right all the way through his ministry he was constantly telling people when he healed them don't tell anybody just go your way um, keep it to yourself it's not yet my hour well this this was the time this this was the time when he he was openly publicly and it was time to let the whole world know and, and again part of the 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 deal was that he was the lamb of god that was going to parade down the street for the whole world to see that he was blameless and blemished Two major prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus in the triumphal entry. I want you to catch them both with me. So not very far back in the Old Testament, you'll find Zechariah. So turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. And the first is this exact um, prophecy is fulfilled. Zechariah chapter 9. Just go back very shortly into the Old Testament. You'll see uh, uh, Malachi. It's right before that. And in Zechariah chapter 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if the king is coming, it doesn't seem real triumphant, right? It doesn't seem real victorious and, and real brave and courageous for a king to come riding on a donkey. Like, don't you think he would come on a, on a steed or a horse or a stallion, a war horse? But, 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 but a donkey? Why a donkey? Well, first of all, a king rode a donkey when he was coming in peace. And it was a sign of peace. And Jesus, being the Prince of Peace, came as the Prince of Peace as he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And, and Jesus has two fulfillments, two comings. And the Bible says the first time Jesus comes, he's coming as a lamb who was slain. He's coming as um, just that. And the second time that he comes, he's coming as a king of kings and lord of lords. He's coming with judgment and righteousness. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. And when Jesus comes back, the first time he came, he came as a suffering servant, as a lamb who was slain. He came humble and lowly and meek. When he comes back, he's not coming back that way. It says in Revelation 19 and verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. What kind of horse? A white horse. Not a donkey, not a lowly, not meek, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true and righteousness. He judges and makes war. It's Jesus. And that's how he's coming back the second time. Not lowly, not meek, not riding on a donkey. He's coming to make war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with, it, with a robe dipped in blood. And, and his name is called the Word of God. Jesus is called the Word of God. And if Jesus is called the Word of God and His name is the Word of God, and in John 1, 1 it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, then we know that the Word of God is powerful, is sharper than a two-edged sword, and that the Word of God is, is going to be preserved by the hand of God. 
And anybody who tells you otherwise that the Word of God is flawed or is only good as much as it's been translated correctly or that, that Jesus of the Bible is something different, just know this, that Jesus is the Word and God will preserve His Word and preserve His Son. And the Bible is, is reliable and it's acceptable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And there is no problem with the Word of God as Jesus is the Word. And let's, let's go on. It says, and, and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white, clean, followed him on a white horse. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule with an iron rod, and he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so Jesus came the first time on a donkey lowly to fulfill prophecy in Zechariah. He's coming back on a white horse. He's coming back on a war horse. A sword's coming out of his mouth. He's got written upon his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's coming to bring war and bring judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. And so both fulfillments of the two comings of Christ. The, the disciples understood from the Old Testament both of these um, and they couldn't separate them. They understood the prophecies of Jesus' second coming without the benefit of the New Testament, but they understood, and that's why every time he told them he was going to die, they didn't get it because they were expecting that second coming of Christ. And on this side of the cross, it's easier and clearer for us to see that, that both prophecies in the Old Testament are true. One was fulfilled in his first and the other fulfilled in his second. Now, I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Now, this is super important. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 25. Everybody say 70 weeks of Daniel. One more time. 70th week of Daniel. So there's, there's this prophetic model that the angel gives in a prophecy to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. And you have to understand, um, or I guess you don't have to do anything, but you, you'll want to understand this prophecy in order to unlock and it helps you understand the rest of what maybe you read about end times and those things in the Bible is kind of having a grasp on this 70th week of Daniel. It can be confusing and I don't expect that everybody in here this morning is going to fully get it just like I, if you're like me, I didn't get it until I heard it a couple times. And then after I put the pieces together, it started to make sense about the third or fourth time I kind of digested it. And so maybe this is the first time for you. And at the end, you'll be like, that was like, whoo. But maybe not. Maybe you're, you're smarter than me and you'll just get it right now, hopefully. So, um, but, but I want to introduce it to you so I understand it. And it's the second prophecy fulfilled in the triumphant entry of Jesus um, on this day. And so, basically, the, there's 70 weeks of Daniel. Now, a week is a heptad. These are heptads. So, basically, what that is is seven years. So, instead of seven days like we have in a week... Every day represents a year. So a heptad or a week would actually be a seven-year period. So um, there's 70 weeks that, that are required to fulfill this prophecy in Daniel. Everybody say 70 weeks required to fulfill the prophecy. So we're going to see in that 70 weeks, have we fulfilled? Where are those 70 weeks of Daniel, those 77-year periods? You find this number 70 times 7 repeated multiple times in the Bible, right? When Peter came to Jesus and he said, oh, should I forgive someone seven times, Jesus? He thought he was being real studly, you know, and Jesus said seven times. No, 70 times 7. 70 times 7 is 
490, okay? And for four, because Jesus did it. For 490 years, he forgave the nation of Israel for not observing Sabbath rests. And then at the end of 490 years, they owed him 70 years of rest. The land had to rest for 70 years. So Nebuchadnezzar and his people showed up and took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the rest of the Hebrew nation back to Babylon for captivity. And guess how long they stayed there? 70 years to fulfill that 70 years that they owed God. At the end or in that point, the angel gave Daniel a prophecy about this 70 week model uh, or 490 years that needs to be fulfilled in, in all of biblical prophecy. So the 70th week of Daniel is the, the one that we're going to kind of get to today or kind of try to help you understand because you'll hear that term, the 70th week of Daniel or 69 weeks. So verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined. How many? For your people in your holy, holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Everybody say Messiah the Prince. Which is who? Jesus. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, all right. Now, this is tough. So wipe the sweat off your brow and answer this question. It says there shall be uh, 62 and seven weeks. So 62 plus seven equals what? Oh my gosh, nobody in the last service could get that. They're like, 62 plus 7. They thought it was a trick question or something. I'm like, it's not hard. It's 69. So 69. So we have broken up already into 62 and 7, which gives us 69. As we're going to see, there's one week missing. Okay? So he says the 62 plus 7. And he says, from the going forth, verse 25, from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So on March 14th, write this date down in Daniel, March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes gave the decree for um, Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, under Zerubbabel, to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So they were in Babylon captivity for 70 years. Nebuchadnezzar was overthrown by the Medo-Persians some time in there. There was a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that, that said exactly by name the guy that was going to defeat Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel brought it to the, the Medo-Persian king and he showed him his name in the book of Isaiah and said, look, God prophesied that you would come and defeat Nebuchadnezzar. And the guy was so impressed by Daniel and the nation of Israel and, and the relationship that he had with Daniel he treated the, the Jews that were in captivity in Babylon well. And on March 14th, 445 BC, he gave a decree that, that they would go back and, and re, begin to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And then at the end of 70 years, as we know, they, they were released from Babylonian captivity. And so if you take the 400 or, or um, sorry, March 14th, 445 BC, that's four, and then the 62 times seven is 483. So 483 years, and you multiply that by the um, Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar of 360 days, that brings you to 173,880 days. 
according to fulfill this prophecy. So if you're interested and, and you want to do some more research or just kind of follow up, Sir Robert Anderson wrote a book called The Coming Prince, and he lays out all the math in, in, in easy-to-understand kind of terms. But he took this prophecy of Daniel, he did the math, and he calculated from 445 B.C. how many years that would have been, 400 and 83 years, 360 days, 173,880 days. And he calculated forward to the Hebrew calendar. And it brings you to the exact day that Jesus would have entered Jerusalem in a triumphal entry. And so it's, it's the 10th of Nisan, AD 32, which is like April 15th of, of, of our calendar. And so the exact day Daniel prophesies, God gives the exact day according to it. Jesus is going to rebuke him. When we get back to Matthew or get back to Mark, we're going to see where Jesus rebukes them because he said this, you should have known your day. How should they have known their day? Because Daniel prophesied exactly to the day that Messiah would come and they missed it. Isn't God amazing? Isn't that amazing that God told them the exact day that Messiah would enter and that was the day it was fulfilled that Jesus got on this donkey and entered the, the, the streets. So then the rest of this prophecy. So it says, after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. So that's why it's the 62 times 7. Because you got 62 weeks till Messiah. So 62 uh, 7-year periods, right? So 62 times 7, 483 times 360 days gives you the day. And then, so now we're at 62 of the 70 weeks. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctify it. And the end shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And he goes on and talks about the abomination of desolation. So the 62 plus the 7 is 69. We got one week missing. Any idea when that one week is? That is, that is the seven-year tribulation period that is, that is laid out for us that's yet future. So 69 weeks of Daniel chapter 9 are fulfilled, and we're waiting on the last week, that last seven-year period of human history, Revelation 6 to 19, that's, that's prophesied and laid out for us in the book of Daniel. And, and the, um, one of the reasons why I'm so staunch and, and for lots of reasons, I got lots of reasons and I, I haven't always been, I don't think. And I, I tried to be, and I don't ever want to cause, um, any kind of, you know, disunity. I want there to be unity in the body of Christ. And if somebody in another church, somebody in our church doesn't agree with me, I, I can agree to disagree with you. But me personally, where I stand, I am so staunch pre-trib and, and that's just where I'm at. And, and again, it doesn't mean that you can't be wrong and we could still get along. We could, we could still be friends and you could be wrong. Um, and I'll love you just the same. I really will. Even if you got bad theology. No, I'm just kidding. But one of the reasons is because there, there's this clock. There's a prophetic clock that's laid out for us in Daniel. The 62, the 7, and the one missing week, which is yet future, the, the seven-year tribulation period that we studied. And, 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 the, and the Bible says that when the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled... So when the last Gentile gets saved, right now we live in, so um, Paul and Peter, they brought the gospel to what? The Gentiles. Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. 
God says that, you know, he wept. Jesus wept over the city because they didn't know their peace. They missed this day. They didn't know what potential they had to be a lighthouse to the whole world Israel could have been had they received Jesus as their Messiah. When I was in Israel and I prayed, I'm standing on the Mount of Olives and I'm praying over Jerusalem. And and I was praying that same thing, God, that, that this place was called to be a lighthouse. And imagine what it would have been like had they received Jesus and, and served and trusted and loved. And, and it was, they, I mean, this whole world would be different. This whole world. And Jesus wept because Israel missed it and they missed their potential. But so, so the time clock, God's prophetic time clock froze and it shifted to the gospel, to, to the Gentiles. And at that time, this 69 weeks of Daniel stops. And now we live in what's called the church age, where the bride of Christ. And then when the last Gentile believer gets saved, the rapture happens, and that prophetic clock of God returns to Israel. And that's why I'm pre-trib. Another reason why I'm so pre-trib is because the, the, the tribulation period, the seven-year period, it's not about the church. It's almost arrogant to think that it's about the Gentile believers. It's, a, it's Jewish. The tribulation is Jewish. It's Jewish in nature. It's God's prophetic clock to pour out and bring the nation of Israel back to himself. And, and he's going to do that. And he's going to do it. The Bible says all of Israel shall be saved. The Bible says in the book of Revelation, even tells us what tribe they're from, 144,000 Jewish evangelists preaching the gospel, 12 from each of the 12 tribes, male virgins, in the tribulation period that God uses to preach the gospel. He brings back Moses and Elijah and he sets them in, the, in, the, in, the, in Jerusalem and they do miracles and preach the gospel and angels flying through the sky telling and, and proclaiming the everlasting gospel. But it's Jewish. It's about the Jews. The prophetic time clock, that 70th week of Daniel, picks up at that point and goes back. Amen? Thoroughly confused? We do all right? So, then in verse 12 it says, and now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. No, wait, I did stop there last, last, last service for just a second. Jesus was what? Hungry. I, I think just a quick reminder that, that Jesus had humanity. He was fully human and fully God. You, you know, you think of Jesus like he just floated when he walked. His feet didn't actually touch the ground. And he had this halo over his head. And he had this, like, glow on his face. And he was, like, ten feet tall. And he was just, like... You know, this God figure that just walked, kind of floated across planet Earth, but wasn't the case at all, right? Jesus, Jesus had humanity. He was fully human. Fully God and fully human. When he was on the cross, he didn't use some God powers to not feel pain. He experienced every blow as you and I would. They, they, they tried to give him a pain um, number uh, when he was on the cross in some form of juice. And you know the story, he, when he tasted it, he spit it out because he didn't even want that. And, and he, he felt and he lived every part. The Bible records that Jesus got hungry. He got tired. Bad news for you guys. He probably had to go to the bathroom from time to time. He was a human. You know, and he, and he took that on for you. The Bible, the Greek word is kenosis. Jesus emptied himself. He left heaven in his humanity and his divinity. And he became like you and I because of his great love for you. So that he could, he could reconcile us to God. He became human. And it goes on in verse number 13. It says, And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came, he found nothing but the leaves, for it was not the season of figs. In response, Jesus said, Let, it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. 
So he's going to go on. We're going to catch the back part of this fig tree. But Jesus, the fig tree is the nation of Israel. It's always the nation of Israel. You have certain type of biblical typology when you see him. For example, you see um, birds and birds represent the Holy Spirit in, in one case. But most of the time when you see a bird in the, in the Bible, a bird represents a demonic representation. But not every time. Um, they, they represent evil. With the case of the fig tree, 100% of the time in the Bible, when you see the fig tree, it's a representation of, of, of Israel, the nation, without exception. And so here is a, is, is a parable or a, a teaching of the nation of Israel, and they didn't bear fruit. And for that reason, Jesus cursed the fig tree, and it wouldn't bear fruit. In AD 70, Israel was destroyed as a nation. Titus Vespasian came through. I stood in the place recently where they rolled the stones off of the temple mount to get the gold out. And the original pile of temple stones is still there in Jerusalem today, recently discovered in the last 10 years as they dug down another 20 feet and found the original stones that Titus Vespasian and his men in AD 70 rolled off the temple mount. And, and, the, the, and Jesus wept over the city because they didn't see their potential and they missed it. And so here he's going to first curse the fig tree. You know, for you and I, it's, it's your call of God to bear fruit in your life for the Lord. You know, it's, it's really not, you know, Jesus said in, in, Mark cha- or in, in John chapter 15 that, you know, that your, your role is to abide in Christ and to bear fruit and to bear much fruit. And, 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 a, and a vine that doesn't bear fruit for God is good for nothing. He's going to cut it off and, 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 and discard it. And it's, it's our role, it's our job to bear fruit. And this fig tree wasn't bearing fruit. Israel wasn't bearing fruit and they were cut off. And he goes on and he says in verse 15, and it says, So they came to Jerusalem and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who, who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats who were sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. So he stopped him. Some guy's trying to walk through the temple carrying wares. And he said, stop right there. Don't take another step. I think if Jesus is angry and he tells you to stop, you're going to stop. He was a man's man. He had eyes of, of God. And if he looks at you and tells you to stop, I think you're going to get the point. In verse 17, it says, Then he taught, saying to them, it is, not writ- is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. So here we have the second time in Jesus' ministry where he went into the temple, and I guess they didn't learn their lesson the first time, and he overturned all of the money changers and the money tables and drove them out. He did it once early in the ministry too, the second time recorded. Jesus is angry. You know what's interesting is that Jesus already went to the temple in verse 11, and it says, what does it say? Look at verse 11 at the bottom. He went out to Bethany with the twelve because it was late. So he goes in the temple, he sees this stuff, he gets angry. You know what the Bible commands you to do as a Christian, which you may not have realized? The Bible commands you to be angry. It's a commandment. Be angry. In, 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 the, in the commandment of the Greek, be angry and sin not. There, there's things as Christians that, that we're going to get angry at, and that's okay. It's okay to be mad. What's not okay is to take your anger and use it as an excuse for sin. And Jesus said, don't take your anger and let it turn into sin because that's unexcusable. That's, that's not what he's dealing with. That's not what he's talking about. Right, there's no excuse for that. You can't say, oh, well, the Bible says be angry. No, he says be angry and sin not. If you see a, a man harm a child, that, that should make you angry. If you see a president who puts a decree through the land, through all the land, 
that, that, that's not safe for our kids in our schools, that, that should make you angry. But he says, be angry and sin not. And what Jesus did here is he went into the temple and he saw this and he removed himself and he went back. You know the old Dobson thing for any of you guys who read Dobson's book, Strong Willed Child and all that stuff that James Dobson did, focus on the family stuff, a lot of it good stuff. He had a manual on spanking. And um, I read it, asked Luke, I, I know it well. And, um, but, but one of the premises is you, you never discipline your kids in anger. If you're angry, you calm down, you go away. You, you come back later. Luke's like, Dad, you're a pastor and you're lying through your teeth up there. You're a hypocrite. <laughs> okay, I have to confess. I probably dealt with him in anger a couple times. But I know that's not God's best. I know that's not what God wants. And that's, that's the wrong way to do it. And um, the, the smarter, the wiser thing, right? You get angry. How many of us have got angry and just done something stupid? Yeah, right? How many of you got angry and wrote something on Facebook you wish you could take back? All that drama. Like, just save it. Just just rest on it. Let it sleep. Come back the next day. And if you still feel like writing something, then you're still stupid. But at least... No, I'm just kidding. But at least you gave yourself the benefit of the doubt that you're not going to make a decision when you're angry. You're not going to make good decisions when you're angry. It's not very wise, right? We, we, don't, we don't make a decision when we're angry. And we see an example here in the Bible where Jesus is angry and he leaves the situation. He processes and he comes back and he still reacts, but, but he's had the, the night to process and, and to do it right. And we could all learn from, from letting just some time between our anger and any decision that we're going to make, right? And so then... Um, so he comes into the temple and he starts overturning the tables. I already read it, right? And it says that you, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus's idea for his house, and we want to call this a house of God. And it shouldn't be foreign that in this place we should come and, and we should pray. And that, that, that when we come, if I'm praying or I ask you guys to pray or we're going to spend some time in prayer, you know, it's the hardest thing in church. People just have no patience for it. The, the least attended event in America, in American churches, is a prayer meeting. And I can testify in this church. We used to do prayer meetings every Sunday night. And for the first year and a half I was here, I was so faithful to those prayer meetings. And they were important to me personally. I didn't care who showed up. I was going to go and seek the Lord on Sunday nights. But one, two, three, four people. And it was always the smallest service. And just that idea that this is a house of God and you pray in a house of God, it shouldn't be foreign. You know, Jim Cimbala, he's with the New York... Brooklyn Tabernacle in, in New York City. And they, they have really set the tone. They took this verse right here, my house shall be a house of prayer. And man, the Holy Spirit blew that place up. And just a few of them really believed and wanted to make it a house of prayer. And they started a prayer meeting on Tuesday night and they just really started praying and coming and seeking God. And it started growing. Today, there's like 3,000 people that come on a Tuesday night to the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church in New York for, for a prayer meeting. It's one of the most powerful prayer meetings in church. And man, they, they've really set the example for churches that, that come and pray. And he has such an amazing um, video. He's wrote a couple books, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. But really set the example that a church should be a house of prayer. And that's what Jesus taught and taking this seriously. And so Jesus is throwing out the money changers. Now, you know, some of you might say, well, Jesus was throwing out the money changers, but I've been in churches before where they were exchanging money. You know, if you go, you know, Joshua Springs, we got a big bookstore and we sell Bibles and T-shirts and you could buy coffee in the thrift store. 
Is that what Jesus is, is dealing with as churches? You know, we do it. I have some t-shirts back there, had some t-shirts back there that we sell when you come in. And is, is that what Jesus is talking about? And anybody who's changing money in the back of the church? That's not what he's dealing with. He's dealing with one thing specifically. And whenever you see Jesus get angry in the New Testament, as far as I can find, there's always one thing that's consistent. And every time you see this, every time you see Jesus angry, it's when people are trying to keep other people from coming to God. He says that if if you cause a little child to sin, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the deepest ocean. Because they were keeping the children from coming to God and teaching them to sin. And here, they're, they're, what, ha- what would happen, basically, you guys know this story, they would come from all over to worship. And they would have to bring a sacrifice, a lamb, a dove, and it had to be perfect, without blame, without blemish. And so as they came into the temple, before they could come into the house of God and worship, the priest would inspect their offering. And the priest would inspect this lamb that this, these people had traveled. You know, the one guy traveled from Ethiopia in the book of Acts, right, to get there on Passover, and he left without having an experience with God. And thankfully, God had Philip overtake his chariot and, and he ended up baptizing him and saving him. But that, that experience was multiplied hundreds of times. People traveling all over and just left upset. And it made Jesus mad that people were coming to the house to, to, to meet with God and, and people were ripping him off at the door. So they would take that lamb that they brought to offer. And the priest would look at it and go, oh, this one's not perfect. You can't, we won't accept this. And he'd put it in a cage behind him. He'd say, but we have all these over here that are pre-approved. And it was 10 times the price of what that lamb would cost. And of course you would pay it. You wanted to worship. You wanted to sacrifice. You'd be mad. You'd be bitter. Because they forced you to give this, this, this exorbitant money that, that wasn't there. And then when you left, they would take your lamb and they would put it in the cage of the ones that were pre-approved. And the next guy would come and they'd go, oh, nope, sorry, can't use this one. But these are all pre-approved. And then they had money changers there. And if you brought money from any other kind of um, currency, you could only use shekels except for the exchange rate was 10 times the normal rate. And they were ripping people off and people were getting bitter and people were not able, some of them would leave and they weren't able to come and have an experience that was free from those things where they could just come and worship God. And Jesus said, my house should be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. What's a den of thieves? A a den of thieves is a place where thieves can congregate together and be comfortable. A place where they're not going to get arrested and the cops aren't there. They might be stealing each other's stuff because they're all thieves. But, but for the most part, what that means is a place where bad people feel comfortable and safe. And, and you know what? Some churches are, are, are that way. And, and, you, and, you know, praise God that we're not. You know, you, you, have, you have places where you can go every Sunday and you could be the most rotten person and not be, have a personal relationship with Jesus. And you're going to feel comfortable in these churches because the pastor is going to smile and he's going to tell you how awesome you are every week. And you're going to leave feeling good about yourself, whether you know Jesus or not, whether you're saved or not. But it's a den of thieves. It's a place where, where, where it's a house of God where, you know, sinners can come and feel good about themselves when they leave and, and not be called to repentance and not be told that they're sinners and they need a savior. And, and, and Jesus, yes, is a God of amazing love and he'll treat you better than you could ever treat yourself. But you're a sinner and you need saved and you need to repent and you need to get right with Jesus. And, and that's what they did. They made it a den of thieves. And they pushed people away that were coming to serve God. And Jesus got angry and he whipped them out. And it says, when evening had come, he went out of the city. And now in the morning, we're almost done. You guys get to 24, we'll be done. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up by the roots. And Peter remembered. He said, Rabbi, look, remember yesterday? You just 
withered that, you, you cursed that tree and it's already withered? And Jesus answered and said to him, For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that house things he says will be done and he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. And so, you know, God, God's intention here, and this, this verse is so misused. Jesus said, if you say to that mountain, be removed. Somebody say, be removed. Hey, someone, is there a mountain out there? Someone say to that mountain out there, be removed. You could say, be removed you to that mountain all you want. It ain't going anywhere. That's not what Jesus is talking about. The Mount of Olives is still there today. And the disciples, if anybody had the faith to move mountains, if that's what he meant, would have been there. That, that's not what he's saying, literally dirt hills that you could move them with your faith. In, in, the old te- or in, the, in the old times, someone who solved problems was called a mountain mover. That, and that's just a term that was used of people who, were, who dealt with problems and solved problems. And, and, and just like, you know, there's, there's Goliath was a, a real giant that David faced. Goliath on this side of the cross represents a spiritual giant, a, a, a demonic battle, a spiritual battle you're going to fight on this side of the cross. And those mountains may be um, in your life. They may be, may be mountains that you keep going around and around and around. And mountains that you don't have victory over. Pornography and drug addictions and anger and depression and whatever those, those type of mountains are in your life. Jesus said, if you believe and have faith, you can say to those mountains, be removed and I'm done. And I'm not going to just watch a little bit of pornography now. I'm not just going to drink a little bit of alcohol. I'm not just going to do a little bit of drugs. I'm done with that. And you have the power by faith in Jesus' name to remove mountains in your life that are spiritual battles in your life with faith. And that him who sets free is free indeed. And you can move spiritual mountains in your life. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about dirt hills. And really in the context here, Jesus is talking about um, disobedience and unbelief. And those are the type of things in our life that we can deal with, that we can grow in, that we can speak to in faith, and we can speak to, to problems in Jesus' name and the power of Jesus and believing that Jesus can do it and say, I'm done with those things and, and be done with them. And there's power in the name of Jesus to break those chains. And you have that power if you believe. You know, unfortunately, with this whole faith movement that we face and this, this, this faith doctrine that's really prevalent in the church and really popular, that's not true, you, you, you have faith in faith. And that's kind of the deal. Like, if you just have enough faith, you can have a Cadillac like I do. And if you just have enough, name it and claim it. You just name it and you say it and, and all these things. And, you know, I've seen a guy jiggling his keys. To his Cadillac and saying, if you had enough faith, you'd have one too. And if you don't have enough faith and you don't want yours, give me it to me and I'll have two. And I'm like, this whack job, man. This guy is another guy. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is faith. And so the, 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 it, the, the doctrine has been translated faith and faith. And then you read stories like, like Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And you say, God, I, do I lack faith because I'm not well? And, and we've put our faith in faith. But, but our faith needs to be placed in God. 
And when you, fa- when you place your faith in God and trust in God, and you can say at the end of every one of your prayers, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, and your faith and your trust is in the living Savior, Jesus, you will have power to remove mountains in your life. You will have power to overcome addictions. You will have power to step out in ministry. You will have power to go on missions. You will have power to share the gospel. You will have power to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand. Let's have the worship team come up. Close us in a song. Lydia and I will be up to pray for you guys if anybody would like individual prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, I thank you so much for the patience of the people here today, God, as we just had so much to cover in this chapter and didn't even finish. And so many important prophecies and events in, in these last couple days of Jesus' life. And Father, I, I pray that, that we would, Lord, just understand those things in the Bible that increase our faith. And the fact that you prophesied to the day, the day that Jesus would enter Jerusalem. And then you told the disciples, you should have known this day. And they should have known that day because you told them exactly in Daniel what that day was. And so, Lord, as we see those things, it, it just helps our faith and helps us to believe. And Lord, it helps us to look at mountains in our lives and whatever they are, that we can say to this mountain, I'm done in Jesus' name. I'm through with you. I have victory over you in Jesus' name. And so, Father, I pray for each person in here that has any kind of struggle, any kind of mountain in their life, Lord, that you would deal with it now, Lord, that you would give them, Lord, the the encouragement and the love. Jesus, just tell them right now you love them, you care for them, you want to deal with this, and you want them to place their faith, their trust in you. And, Lord, you're calling them right now to believe you and believe your word and believe it's true. And so, Jesus, for each one in here, that's placing their faith in you right now and their trust in you for whatever it is that's going on in their mind, whatever they're thinking about right now that they know they need to deal with. Jesus, we love you and we, we pray that you would lovingly empower us and strengthen us and deal with those issues in our life. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.